This episode is sponsored by the Learn Jazz Standards Inner Circle. If your goal is to level up your jazz playing this year and feel confident improvising over jazz standards, the Inner Circle has everything you need and more. With monthly jazz standard studies, a library of powerful courses, and a vibrant community of like-minded musicians, you're guaranteed to improve your playing every single month. Podcast listeners can get 50% off their first month when you go to ljsinnercircle.com. That's ljsinnercircle.com or find the link in the show notes. Now, on to today's episode. Listening to the LGS podcast, episode number 10. That's right, we made it to episode number 10. Thanks everybody for listening so far. And in today's episode, I got the distinct privilege of talking with internationally renowned guitarist Bruce Foreman. One of, in my opinion, one of the best jazz guitarists alive right now. So this this was incredible. We had an excellent conversation. Uh, I got him on the phone all the way from Los Angeles, California, right before he was heading off to a gig. So uh, we're very excited for today's show. I'm excited for you to listen to this amazing conversation that we had together. But before we get started, I just want to say that all of the music on today's show is by our guest, Bruce Foreman. It's off of his latest album, the Book of Foreman. <laughs> and if you like this music today, if you if you want to maybe buy his album, you can go to cdbaby.com, look up The Book of Foreman or look up Bruce Foreman. I'm sure you'll find it there and you can purchase that album. And and today since this is our 10th episode, in a way I kind of consider it a bit of a a mile marker. You know, when we first started this podcast, we we weren't really sure if uh, how it was going to be received. We weren't really sure if we should, you know, continue doing it. Um, but what we got was just an overwhelming response from all of our our listeners on uh, and, and and readers on Learn Jazz Standards, and and you all seem to really like the show. So um, we want to thank everybody for listening to the show so far and for following us, for tuning in. We sincerely appreciate it, and we especially want to thank all of you who have supported this podcast by donating. We really appreciate it. We also were unsure if we we're going to be able to fund the production of this show. And, and we thank everybody so much so far for, for donating one time or giving monthly um, to support this podcast. We could not do this without you. So we want to thank everybody so much who has supported us thus far um, by giving. And if, if you get some value out of today's show, if you... If you get something out of it, consider adding value back. We're dedicated to keeping this podcast 100% ad-free. So if you got some value out of it today, there's a support button below the player. If you're listening on the website, you can give a one-time or monthly donation there. Or if you're not listening on the website, you can go to learnjazzstandards.com support 
and you can give there. We really appreciate all of your support. All right, now before I get Bruce on the line, I just want to talk a little bit about Bruce for those of you who may not be familiar. Like I said, I think Bruce is, in my opinion, he's one of the best jazz guitarists living today. He's had about 17 recordings out as a leader. He's played on countless albums as a sideman. Um, he's even had a featured role on one of uh, Ray Brown's last albums. Uh, he's done soundtrack performances for Clint Eastwood's um, Oscar-winning Million Dollar Baby. I'm sure a lot of you have seen that film. Um, he's done other stuff like that. Uh, he's just a renowned educator. He is a professor at, uh, not a professor, but he's an adjunct faculty at USC Thornton School of Music. And he's played at jazz festivals all around the world. I mean, he's really a career jazz professional and world-class by all means. And I first met Bruce... Um, Actually, when I was much younger, I think I was probably around 16 or 17, definitely before I had dedicated myself to being a jazz musician. And Bruce really was a guy that he, he led me in the right direction. It was at this jazz camp. It was the first year of the jazz camp. It was called Great Basin Jazz Camp. And I believe the first year was taking place in Nevada. And so I went down to this camp and it just so happened to be that because it was in its first year, there were actually no other guitar players at the camp. So I got to spend an entire week with Bruce just one-on-one -on -one playing and, and talking and hanging out. Um, and and I, I think at the time I didn't even realize how valuable that was. Um, but I, I really, it really impacted me a lot. Uh, he really led me in the right direction. A lot of teachers have, but he really, especially in, in a guitar sense, led me down the right direction. And and in jazz, it doesn't matter if you're listening and you don't play guitar, you're going to get a lot out of today's conversation. So um, Bruce was just a really impactful figure in, in my life as, as, as a jazz musician. So um, I'm just really excited to have him on today. So uh, let's, let's, without further ado, let's get Bruce on the line all the way from Los Angeles. Today I got on internationally renowned jazz guitarist from Los Angeles, Bruce Foreman. Bruce, thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's a pleasure, Brent. Great to talk to you. Absolutely. Well, I just wanted to start out uh, by just talking a little bit about your musical beginnings and just find out, uh, you know, how you got started on this whole thing. So did you come from a musical family? Not really. No, I um my mother did make me play piano when I was a kid, classical piano. And so I did that from about the age of six. And just sort of, you know, did that for a while and got hip to a guitar at about 12 or 13 and just sort of played around with it. It was just easy to carry around and learn some stuff, you know, whatever everybody was playing at the time. That would have been about 1968. Uh -huh. So, and then uh, I, I got, I just, I kind of gravitated more towards that instrument than the piano. It was a lot, it was, I was playing with other people. I think I liked that a lot. And it was nice to be able to carry it around. Right. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, and then I heard Charlie Parker, and that was the end of everything. Wow. Yeah, Charlie Parker. So that's, that's what kind of got you hooked on the jazz thing? Yeah, totally. Okay. So, so how, how did you... How did you get to this point where, you know, at what point was it in your life? I mean, when you discovered Charlie Parker, but 
how did you how did you get to where you are now? What made you go towards this path of becoming a professional jazz musician? Wow. Um, well, I just I just loved the music, and I and there was a couple of guys in my school that were good players, and and then I got connected with the rich jazz community of San Francisco and all the players there, and they were very welcoming, and I just loved the. Love the music. I love the people, and I uh, love the challenge. And so I just sort of did it. It was all I wanted to do, really. And I just kept doing it. Next thing you know, I'm gigging, you know, in high school, and and you know, I'm just I I love it so much. I'm constantly I'm just in a constant state of studying it all the time and right. checking out what everybody's doing. And it just it just sort of happened to me. It didn't really. I mean, I didn't kind of go to career day at high school and kind of decide, wow, I want to sleep late, so maybe I ought to be a jazz musician, you know. Right. Uh, now, there wasn't, you know, was was there the kind of thing they have now where you go to college for jazz, or was it completely different back then? Well, that it was just starting back then. Okay. Uh, there was a couple of schools that did have jazz programs. North Texas and Berkeley were, were going strong. Indiana was just starting up. You know, it was just, it was in its fledgling, the jazz education world. And, um, I was lucky to be in San Francisco. It was such a rich time. We had this great club called Keystone Corner, which had the world's greatest jazz bands, you know, would play six nights a week there, along with a numerous other clubs where other bands would come through and uh, a lot of great local players and Bobby Hutcherson and Joe Henderson and yeah. Woody Shaw and George Cables all lived in San Francisco at that time. So I was immersed in this amazing community. And so... I went and checked out North Texas, and I just realized being out in Denton with a bunch of kids my age, or hanging in San Francisco with Woody Shaw and Joe Henderson and Bobby Hutcherson, it just seemed pretty obvious to me what the best thing for me to be doing was at that time. And then I moved to New York, you know, and so it was just... It you just, moved to New York? I, I didn't know you moved to New York. Yeah, I lived in New York in the late 70s. So, oh, okay. Um, How long did you live in New York? Uh, two years. Two years. And, and and I was in a lot of bands that were touring, and they were based in on the West Coast. So I just sort of ended up out here again, where it's my home. And I kind of never, you know, I go through New York, but I never move back there, you know. But um, so it was a whole different world then. There were lots of gigs and lots of bands playing, and uh, lots of inspiration and. And so I just kind of followed the dream and didn't really think about it. I've always loved to teach because cause I'm just, I like to study. I mean, I, I'm just the music, right. the way it works and how to make it work is just one of the things I'm always thinking about. And I also, I guess I have a lot of empathy for people. So I, when I see them kind of needing to figure things out, I like to help and, you know, and, and try to help them figure out a way to find what's happening in their ear, you know, and get them to the place they want to be. So I've always been involved in the education, just not in the formal thing till I ended up teaching at, you know, university. So teaching and in, in education in jazz, this is clearly something that's important to you. I know you're, you're teaching at uh, USC. That's correct, right? Yes. Okay. Well, how important is, is it, you know, there's this big debate about, you know, the insta institutionalization of jazz and, uh-huh. you know, how it how it kind of how it's kind of taken root in the schools versus how it used to be, you know, you know, back in the day with Charlie Parker and all these guys where they really just went to clubs and they listened to each other and they played with each other. What are some of your thoughts on that? Well, um, hmm. 
I, you know, I, I'm ambivalent about it. Now, you got to understand that my interaction with this whole animal, the institutionalization that you call, uh, is I only do private lessons. So uh -huh. in many ways, what I'm doing is no different than the world was back when, when, you know, good young players were coming up and wanted to hang out with cats and pick their brain. And, you know what I mean? And play with them. So my experience, you could say, is pretty much no different than it was 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 80 years ago. Um, the institutionalization of it, though, the, the fact that the whole thing has moved out of the clubs and into the schools, I think it's had a dramatic effect on, the, on what the music sounds like, okay. on the way people play it. And um, I think it's also, it's just, it's just the way the times have moved on. I'm glad that jazz has been accepted as a high art form, that, that the institutions like the universities... Um, and nonprofits want to support and see it as valuable to kids, and I, and of course, it has a huge impact on how the music sounds and how it's played. How, how do you and think I, it affected the way the way it sounds uh, with the? Well, with I think that in general, uh, you have to understand that I played gigs, and the gigs there were people in clubs listening to the music, and there was a there was a a. Um, it was it was a happening. It was it, the music was not the only thing. It was a fabric of of an of a bigger soci, sociological experiment, mm -hmm. and and in the school, it's pretty much isolated to it's only the art. It's only it's not interacting in a real world situation. There's right. no there's no social aspect to it. There's no economy attached to it, and and those ramifications have made it far more easy to be isolated and to just sort of come up with something that's far more intellectual and void of, of all those other pressures. Now, though, right. that could be a good thing or a bad thing. I, you know, I try, not to, sure. I try not to bring value judgments to things because that doesn't help me help myself or other people. I know what I like, and I do right. like interacting with people, and I actually even like entertaining people, you know, and I know that's... In many ways, that seems like that's almost a, a taboo in jazz now. But I dig it. I dig <laughs> yeah. it when people like the music and are having a good time. I just, yeah. I like it when people laugh. I'm kind of would love to be a comedian too. I kind of am. I've, I've been to your shows. I've okay. uh, I've heard the jokes. Yeah, I've, you, you know, know you're I mean, you're you're good at that. You're amazing at that. You know, it, and I and I sort of do agree with you that there's this idea that. Um, it, it, the music sometimes gets over intellectualized, and the entertainment value can be lost at times. Uh, right. Just remembering that not, we're, we're entertainers I, as well. Yeah, but I don't want to sit here and say, "Oh, that you know, one is good and one is bad." I'm, I'm really, sure. you know, everybody, everybody, you know, this music is creative art music. Everybody's supposed to tell their own story. And if your story is this, you know, everybody check out how badass I am and look how smart I am and how difficult I can do things, you know, if that's your story, then you should tell that story. And good luck, you know what I mean? And right, right. some people are going to dig it and some people aren't going to dig it. And sure. if you're a kind of person like me who likes to swing and challenge himself and, you know, and have fun and make people laugh, you know, then uh, you sh I should be able to do that, and it should be no less jazz than anything else. You know, sure. and that's and and, and I'm and, and as a teacher or a player, as a player, I'm out here to do put myself into the situations I'm in and make the best music possible. Be creative, use my imagination, and paint a soundscape for that moment. 
uh, as a teacher, I'm there to help the person get to where they want to go. Mm-hmm. And that's all I'm thinking about. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter if I like it. It really, the only person that should matter to is me. <laughs> <You> right. <know? laughs> okay. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, do, you, do you think that the, the you know, is, the, is there the same opportunities for younger jazz musicians coming up now as there were uh, back when, you know, you were in your 20s per se? Definitely not the same opportunities. Okay. Definitely not. Are there opportunities? Yes. Are there as many opportunities? Perhaps, maybe more, maybe less. I really can't answer that question. I do know that, look at what we're doing right now. We're sitting here talking, you know, via the internet, and uh, we're able, we're able, I mean, I can give lessons in the same way we're talking right now. That was not around when I was in my 20s. So the ability to reach out to people all around the world, the ability for an artist who's not signed to a major label to still have the opportunity to reach out to fans all around the world to put a tour together, to, uh, you know, to create new things happening. It's like there are opportunities that were not around back then. And because of it, we have new responsibilities because obviously clubs and promoters have, have decided that they don't need to promote our gigs. It's up to us because we've got this email base and Facebook. And so now we've become not just musicians, but we also have to promote our gigs. And we have to learn how to do that. And I, I, I just want to throw down, like I do to all my students, to anybody who's listening you know, to this from a... Um, you know, like from your age perspective, it's all the entrepreneurs now, man. You got to yeah. figure out, you know, it might not be clubs where this music is played anymore. Right. You know, the future of this music may be pet stores or coffee shops or, you know, or factories, you know, or, you know, playing breakfast at, you know, at some Denny's somewhere. I don't know. You know, it's like we're going to have to figure out where to, you know, if, if you've got music that people want to hear, and you find a place to play it, you'll be okay, you know. And 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 there's lots of tools to use now, and it and that that's part of the creativity now. It's not just what you're going to do on a G7 chord, but where do you want? What do you want the defining qualities of your music to be? Who do you want to reach out to? Where is the best way to do that? What's you know? How can you create your thing to make it have impact in the world around you? Yeah, Those I like. I, I like to call it being a jazz entrepreneur, you know, because, yeah. because you know, the, the, the internet has, I mean, it's revolutionized a lot of different industries, but you know, sure as hell, it's also revolutionized, uh, you know, the jazz industry. And so you hear a lot of people complaining, oh, it's not like what it used to be. It's not this, it's not that, but, but it's just changed. I think that that's my perspective on it. It's just changed and you have to find a way to fit into the world around you. And I think that's what you're saying. Exactly what I'm saying, although I, I've never heard the words jazz and industry put together before, but, you know, I mean, it, sound, it has a nice ring to it, i got to say. <laughs> hey, it could be something. It could be something. <laughs> you know, I mean, but, yeah, and, you know, I'm, let's face it, I'm, a, you know, I'm getting up in years, and I've been doing this, you know, a lot longer than you've been alive, and so right. naturally things change, and they're supposed to change, and, you know, and I mean, and I'm supposed to be like that. I'm sure I'm like one of those guys that... You know, when Bird came along, the older cats hated him because uh, he was changing the music and, you know, making it a different thing. And and then Train came along and they hated him and, you know, and Sun yeah. Ra and Ornette. And there was, you know, and it, it's like, and then when, you know, when Miles added, you know, did Bitches Brew and Rock and Roll started being part of Jet. I mean, it's like, 
that meets a lot of resistance because the people, you know, you can see like you're being put to pasture. There's, you know, you really love what you're doing. I'm committed to the way I play. I believe in it. I put right. a whole lifetime of work into this and to see the world kind of stylistically and aesthetically choosing to move in a newer direction. Um, of course that stings, <laughs> you know what I mean? And of course, you know, it's easy to have that sort of bewilderment and, you know, and, and even a little bitterness, you know, that's to be expected. I, I really try to tone it down and, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, I just play and try and find people who want to hear it. But, um, you know, but it's everybody needs to do what they think. But when, when I hear young people bitter about it's not the way it was, they don't even know the way it was. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's just ignorance, right. you know, with what they are. And, 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 and there is this whole thing of like people, you know, there's there's an entitled. Uh, how can I say this politically correctly? OK, I probably can't. <laughs> but there's the people who are going to college are entitled people. They can spend a lot of money. You know, they can get they can get go into debt, whatever. I mean, even just being able to go into debt is kind of an entitled position, you know, that someone will loan you money. And you know, and you go and, and, and these are people who this is the way it works. You go to college, you get a degree and you get a job, right? That's the way it's always been in this society. Right. No, no. In jazz it was never that way. It wasn't, yeah. And it's not that way. And I think a lot of people are like spent a lot of money going to school and they got their degree. And now they're hitting, you know, and they and they want it to be the way it used to be. Well, it wasn't the way it used to be where you just like paid a quarter million dollars for an education and then somebody like said, oh, now you're in Art Blakey's band, you know, and I mean, it's like it just doesn't work that way and it never did. I, I see it all the I see it all the time over here in New York, Bruce, among, uh, you know, my generation. You know, I, I went to school with a lot of guys and as soon as, you know, they racked up tons of college debt as soon as it got out, you know, they just... They didn't really have a plan. They didn't really know what was going to happen. I guess they thought, oh, by the time I'm out of college, I'll be playing a bunch of gigs and playing with these, you know, big people. But, you know, they, they found out that's not exactly how it works. So that is totally not, that's not how it ever worked. You know what I mean? And so, like, and then they'll say, then they start getting mad at jazz for it. They got their degree and they believe that the world works. You know, you get your degree, you're entitled to getting stuff. And it just doesn't work that way. And then, and the only thing that degree kind of gives you the ability to do is to get a job teaching this music in a university. But you know, there's X amount of positions, and there's a hundred times that getting these degrees. So that's an even more competitive environment. And and you know, I mean, it's it's just people are not realistic. They don't understand that when you know, I used to go hear Art Blakey even in the, we're talking this you know the seventies, early seventies. Uh, you know, he was playing six nights a week on a, on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night. There was, you know, 15, 20 people there. And on the last set, I was probably the only person there. Mm. You know, and even on the weekends, there would occasionally be full show and maybe not. You know, that, that famous Bill Evans Vanguard record, there was probably 20 people in the room <laughs> when he recorded that. The Village Vanguard, you know, because you live in New yeah. York, you know how small that place it's is. It's small. It's not that to a, big. To a, to a kid who's studying jazz in some somewhere else, that's that's a church. Yeah. In their mind, that is a uh, that's a hallowed as it should be. It is a hallowed church, but they just the 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 idea of scale is a little bit you know illusions of grandeur. To, you know, I mean, they're, they're imagining, wow, the Village Vanguard, they're, you know, you're thinking it's like some 
grandiose place because it, it so much amazing history has happened there. And in fact, those cats were margin, you know, we were on the margin of popularity, you know, they were on the margin of popularity. The music's always had great supporters, but to think of it in terms of this sort of, you know, packed house all the time and smoke and mirrors and everything looks like the Grammys or something. It's just, you know what I mean? It's, it's you know, this music, it just was played by guys who loved it. Right. And it somehow managed, you know, Todd Barkin, who's a great, who ran Keystone Corner, he's in New York now and ran the club, you know, the Dizzy Lincoln Center oh, yeah. and does a lot of stuff. He, you know, we talked to each other, it was my birthday and he, he sent me, he said, and he just said, Bruce, take care of the music and the music will take care of you. Oh, I like that. And like, and what a great sentiment that is. Absolutely. You know, it just reduces it to the reality of, of really, why are we doing this? And, and what are we doing it for? Gears really quick here. Uh, I want to ask you this question because uh, I've heard you say it before, and so I'd love for our audience to hear this. Um, you know, we are LearnJazzStandards.com. Are there yeah. are there uh, are there a certain handful of jazz standards that you would say, as a jazz musician, you need to know these songs? Oh, of course, of course. I mean, there's a handful of them, you know. And 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 I have I've thought of this, and and I use this. Uh, this is actually I have a podcast as well, as you know, Guitar yeah. Wake. It's called with Scott Henderson, and and I've actually brought this up on my podcast. Yes, with all my students, I have like a a list of ten tunes that I suggest they learn, and I have a reason for that. And the biggest reason is so that is so that you learn to hear how melody and harmony inform. The basics of those three things interact so that as you go through learning more tunes and writing your own tunes, you have a really solid basis of, of how it works. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's why I pick, I call them the mother tunes, these ten tunes. But, you know, every tune teaches you something, and, and, but you've got to learn it. You can't read it in a book. You have to learn it. And if you don't learn it, Really, are you even ready to call yourself a jazz musician? You know, I'd be like a doctor, you know, who's going to operate on you, like needing the book when he was operating. Scary. Yeah. You want you want that doctor? I don't think so. So yes, there's there's I have a list of ten tunes, you know, and they're the obvious ones, and and of course the great thing about them is you can call them anywhere at any jam session, and everybody will know them. I know a lot of the hipster guys will put you down for calling a tune, but I'll guarantee it. There ain't nobody on earth who's played that tune well enough to say that they don't ever need to play it again. Right. There's yeah. always something new and exciting that can happen on any tune, you know. I... Or if if there's not, then they're not really jazz musicians, are they? Because because you know, you got to and it's all about imagination and creativity. You know, if you're playing a one chord vamp, if you're playing the blues, if you're playing autumn leaves, or if you're playing giant steps, or if you're playing, you know, whatever new tune you want to play in seven with a bridge in thirteen. It's all about being creative and making great sound. Yeah, you know, and so it's like, you know, I, 
you know, so I, I think the basic 10, you know, it's pretty obvious what they're about there. I bet I, I think I've already, even for your website, submitted that, haven't I? Uh, I, I think I it's somewhere on there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, because I've known you since, you know, we met when you were in a uh, music camp oh, up yeah, in Idaho yeah. or in Nevada somewhere. And, uh, and you know, and I just, I just really believe... I just got a whole different way of teaching because I know how I learned and I know how the great players I've played with learned and I just think there's nothing wrong with learning that way. So Right. No, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm going to be that guy who says, you know, learn tunes, learn to hear, play within your means, get a good feeling, get a great sound, start there, be melodic, you know, express yourself. Listen to what's going on around you. Always be able to hear what's happening around you. That, that, those are the hallmarks of playing that are far more important than playing some difficult shit or having you know having the hippest newest licks in your in your quiver. You right. know. So so give give us the top five. What what, what would you say are the top five? Oh, uh, you know, I got a five. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, take the A train uh -huh. is a great one. It gives you the sound of the two dominant chord in the clearest, most possible way. You're never, if you really learn that tune, you're never going to hear a two dominant chord again and not know what it is. Uh, you know, and then honeysuckle rose. It's the best study of two five, and plus that mm -hmm. that particular way that melody works is 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 just pretty much in everybody's vocabulary. So, uh, and of course, that bridge is like the most famous bridge ever. Um, All the things you are is the best study of the cycle of fourths, right. you know, cycle of fifths that you'll ever ever have. And uh, and you know, and it's got all the moves. It goes to the four chord. It does all these things. It's got cool modulations. Um, I, I definitely, you know, just friends is a song that starts on the four chord and works its way down. There's a lot of songs that do that. You need to learn to hear that cycles back through the relative minor in you know in the second a in the second half it's also got a uh, first ending second ending type of form obviously autumn leaves is the world's best uh coexistence of the relative major and minor and it's got a slightly odd form in the way it doesn't have a aaba it's kind of like aabc um it, it, you know these kinds of songs that and the melodies are so indicative of the harmony right yeah that you, that you learn to start hearing these two things together instead of memorizing a melody and memorizing the chords and somewhere down the road hoping they all kind of come together. These songs will teach you that they are together from the first moment. And you're starting to develop a holistic concept of how to approach playing. So when you're, when you're taking a solo, when you're improvising in general, are... Uh, are you splitting your your brain in all these different uh, these different categories you're talking about? Uh, are you focusing on 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 the melody more? Is there is there anything particular things maybe in the practice room that you would work on? Okay, well, in the practice room it's way different than in the playing. You know, on the on the stand. Sure, yeah, um, we could talk about both. But, but I still, yeah, but I still, I still, um, in the practice room, I still think there's certain things you need to do. Definitely having great command of the melody and being able to embellish on the melody. That's something mm. I work on to this day all the time. Um, in, introducing harmonic information, but within the context of the melody. Monk uh, did that all the I, time. Monk did that. Yeah. Yeah. And taking, taking, other melodic ideas, motifs, and working them through the changes, but not in the context of, of molesting the idea of the motif. I mean, developing the motif. Let it, let, you know, like maybe you'll start off with kind of small intervals, but then, you know, you'll hear 
a big interval jump, and then that becomes a sequence of events that you work through the changes. You know, just some sort of really contextual storytelling. You know, and, and, and the beautiful thing in practice is you can stop and like, wow, I heard this, but I played that. Why? What was I hearing? And what did I, you know, like, and, and you, you correct an intervallic uh, issue that you have. Like, you know, we need to develop savvy so that when we hear a note from wherever we are, we can just play that next note. And so, like, you hear a note and you go to play it. If you didn't play the one you wanted, find out where it is, you know, and you're training your, your brain to, to work by ear, you know, and then you can also use your mind to help you guide to find harmonic information, where the thirds and sevenths are, things like mm -hmm. that. That's a great way to do it. I, I do these things all the times when I'm shedding, and also I would suggest highly to, to play a line of continuous eighth notes through everything is a great way to practice through a tune because it forces you to, uh, on a lot of levels, one, you start to hear resolutions as they're about to happen, and if you're going to get there early, you, you learn to adjust to it, or if you're going to get there late, you might want to adjust to it. Your time gets better. Your your chops get better, but more importantly, you know, when you're swinging, it feels great, but if you stop swinging, what does everybody do? They stop playing, and they start another line, you know, and 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 in practice, is that really a good idea? Isn't it better to learn to develop the ability, to, as if you feel it stopping to swing, to be able to correct it and bring it, get it back on the tracks? You know, you feel the train right. coming off the tracks, and if you can correct that in your practice, then when you get to the bandstand, your confidence and your ability to just to give yourself to the music and just pay attention to other people is just, that's what it's about. And you've, you've created a method that has made you strong fundamentally so that you can do that. Right. So 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 you're definitely of the school of, you know, when you're on the bandstand, you shouldn't be thinking about much. You should be that was the prac that was the time for the practice room, you know. Exactly. But then again, if you're young, you know, and, and this is new to you, it's, of course, you have to keep the changes in your head. Sure. Of course, you have to keep track of the melody, you know, and it's, so what, what you got to try and do is, is know where you're at. And, you know, use your, the funny thing about jazz, and this is a pet peeve I have, it seems to me that in jazz, particularly young players are all about making it harder for themselves. <laughs> you know, they're trying to do all this stuff and thinking about all this stuff, which totally pulls them away from what's happening around them uh -huh. or the ba elements of sound. I mean, I've, I've watched guitar players not even know what pickup they were using uh -huh. because they were so st stuck on trying to play whatever was in their head, that they were, they were that unaware of what's going on around them, that they literally didn't know their sound was not what they thought it was. Oh, they switched to the, the bridge pickup or something like yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and they were just unaware of it. You know, I mean, not that they wanted it, but they just didn't know. And like, that shows you that, you know, the brain, our brains, we're intellectual creatures. We should be, every step of the way, we should be making this process easier for ourselves, not harder. Right. That's what the brain is for. And, um, and so it just, you know, so you get into a situation, well, if all you can deal with is, I know it's in this key and I know it's this many bars, then that's where you start and you listen to what's going on around you and you make something happen. But pretty soon, before you know it, then you can start adding the changes in. Then the next thing you know, you can start adding the substitute changes in. You know, you can react to rhythmic ideas around you, you know. Next thing you know, you're... You're coming. You're you're quoting tunes inside it from other places, and and it's like, this these things happen on a very organic and an evolutionary process, and that's that's the genesis of your style as a musician, and people are 
treating this stuff like it's it's a recitation of shit that's been played by other people. And I mean, I don't know. That's the guys around me when I was your age or younger than you, and I was coming up. They not only encouraged originality, they demanded it. Wow. I mean, if I got up and I was listening to Wes all day, and I started playing octaves with my thumb and everything, they would get mad at me. Really. Yeah. Okay. They would say like, "Hey, if I wanted West Montgomery, I'd have hired him. You know, <laughs> hired you. Give me what you got. You know, I don't want you at home playing with your records. Uh, I want you here on the bandstand playing with me." Gotcha. Okay. I mean, that was that was the kind of mentoring I had. Yeah. And I'm not saying don't copy the masters that you love. Of course you should, but don't. I guess be influenced by them. Don't copy. You got to so find your own voice. Right, and you know, be creative. I mean, damn, is this? You know, it's your life. Right. Really, at the end of that, you want to say, "Yeah, I, I really regurgitate a lot of great Pat Martino licks, man. Isn't that really cool?" You know, it's like uh, I don't even know if Pat Martino would think that was cool. Right. You, <laughs> you, you might feel flattered for a second, but then after a while, it'd wear off. Or, or ask him about him playing his own shit, man. You know, <laughs> he might even say, "You know, I wish I'd played some other shit too." You yeah. Know, it's like so. <laughs> So, anyways, but um, I do have I do have online masterclasses at mymusicmasterclass.com. Mymusicmasterclass.com. There's going to be a link for that in the show notes. So, if you're on the right. website right now, be sure to check that out. You can uh, check out Bruce's masterclasses there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because a lot of these things we're talking about, I I not only talk about them, but I I, I you know, as a teacher, I like to give people exercises. I feel like just explaining something isn't enough. We need to craft a a methodology for actually doing it. So, you know, in my things, I will go into details how I think a great way to practice to develop these particular things would work, you know. I also want to talk to you a bit about uh, your your new podcast here with Scott Henderson, Guitar Wank. Tell us a little bit about the podcast. Well, it's it's it is so much fun. <laughs> it is a lot of fun. I've I've been listening to it. It's hilarious. I mean, the logo. If all you have to do is see the logo, and you'll be laughing. So that, that's, yeah, yeah, that's all you need. And it just happened because Scott and I are buddies. We've always I've always loved his playing, and you know and. He says the feeling's mutual. I'm not so sure. He might be a liar. But um, <laughs> uh, we, we, we hang out and we go out and have breakfast. You know, it's like, you know, geezer breakfasts. You know what I mean? We go out and we go to this one diner. And, and this one guy came out, a friend of mine, this Australian guy who was a great guitar player, um, came out and hung out with us. And uh, he heard us talking and he says, oh, my God, he says, the world needs to hear this. You know, this is a great we should make a radio show out of it. You know, and then he said, you know, you two, you guys are like those two old guys in the balcony of the Muppet show. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So um, so we said, "Okay, let's do it. So he has a studio and his main business is selling um, movie cues for trailers. You know, he he makes, you know, those movie soundtracks. Oh, okay, yeah. And, and so he has a studio, and so uh, we just got together and got a logo, and just we get together most every week, and uh, we put some in the bank when we're on the tour, you know what I mean? And we just release uh, about a 45-minute hour podcast just where we talk about playing, and we 
you know, it's a little bit of teaching and a lot of laughing and a lot of complaining and a lot of, you know, criticizing and ha and heckling and ranting and um, we just have a lot of fun and it's uh, yeah. it's been real exciting and I really and people chime in and ask questions and we um, we answer them on the podcast and it's sort of like that show Car Talk but for guitars yeah. with dirty with dirty words right right you know and I hate I don't want to say that it's it's a much you know a lot funner of a podcast than this one but I mean to be honest it is you you got to go check it out it's guitarwank.com uh, excellent show Scott Henderson, Bruce Foreman. Uh, well, thanks, Brent. I appreciate it. We we sure love doing it, and uh, it's it's you know basically we are doing the same thing, and and it's really, I think what needs to everybody needs to realize is is it's about creating community. Um, you know, you're helping people out by by putting up the information you put out and reaching out to people and enabling them to connect with each other, and you know, and and ultimately whether we're on a gig or we're teaching a lesson or we're doing a podcast or we're putting up, you know, a blog or whatever, it's, it's about the community. You know, we all need each other and the world needs more great music and more creativity and more people who are positive working, you know, for, to make the world a better Absolutely. place. And, yeah. and that's really what, what this is all about. And I think if, if we remember that, we can't go wrong. Absolutely. I mean, it, that's exactly what we do here on Learn Jazz Standards, creating community, sharing music with everybody, uh, you know, and, and so it's a, it's a great thing you guys are doing. Love the show. Uh, you know, can't wait till the next episode. So looking forward to that. Well, they come out every Monday night, like clockwork. Every ama I'm amazed that night. we've been able to put 17 in a row out. That's, you know? yeah, that's a lot of episodes. I mean, and, 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 you know, it does take time to, to do the podcast. So, you know, it, yeah, it's, yeah. Okay, well, Bruce, uh, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much for being on the show. We know you're a busy man. I know you're about to head on out to a gig. Where are you headed tonight? I'm headed to Santa Cruz. It's uh, There's this great place called the Kumba Jazz Center. It's been in one of the greatest jazz clubs in America for over 40 years now. And uh, I'm playing with my trio, which is on my new CD, you know, the Book of Foreman with Marvin Smitty Smith and Alvin, uh, Alex Frank on bass. Right. Excellent. Okay, Bruce. Well, thanks thanks again for being on the on the show. Hope you enjoy your gig and uh we'll hope to talk to you sometime soon. Hey, Brent, always great to uh, hear from you and talk to you and congratulations on everything. All right, and that is all for today's episode. We want to thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning in. I know I really enjoy talking with Bruce. I learned a lot just from um, chatting with him, and I hope you did too. And if you have anything to comment on about today's episode, feel free to leave us a comment in the comment section below if you're on the website. We'd love to hear from you. And just a reminder that all the music on today's episode is by our guest, jazz guitarist Bruce Foreman. It's his uh, latest album, The Book of Foreman. You can uh, check out that music. Uh, go to cdbaby.com, look up The Book of Foreman. You should find that music there. 
And also another reminder, if you got value from today's podcast, consider adding value back, support the podcast, leave a donation by clicking the support button below um, on the player, uh, below the player if you're on the website. And if you're not on the website, go to learnjazzstandards.com slash support. Okay, and next week we're going to be coming out with episode 11 of the LJS podcast. We'll see you then. podcast listener would you like to ask me a jazz question and get it answered here on the show then go to learnjazzstandards.com forward slash ask that's learnjazzstandards.com forward slash ask i look forward to hearing your question and answering it on a future podcast episode learnjazzstandards.com forward slash ask or find the link in today's show notes